World peace might feel kind of like a pipe dream, but what if I told you it's not? 2024 will see more than 50 elections around the world. And in some places, peace is actually on the ballot. One reason is because countries in Europe and Latin America have been experimenting with this thing called feminist foreign policy. Because right now, the way that we wage war and peace, it's kind of a boys club. The new season of Things That Go Boom from Inkstick Media and PRX is coming March 18th. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. For decades, Russia's gulag system sent rabble-rousers, elites, even just the well-educated, to labor camps far from urban centers. At the time, it was terrible for those interned, but in the long run, it's been surprisingly good for the areas near the camp. And in many cities of the Arab world, cycling is dicing with death. That's changing as groups of young campaigners from Morocco to Syria make a really good case for more room on the road. But first... Two years ago this weekend, it was an almost unbelievable step. Millions of people in Wuhan, central China's biggest city, were suddenly forced into lockdown. We begin tonight with Chinese authorities making a drastic decision, closing all transport networks in the city that is at the heart of the coronavirus outbreak that is spreading... No trains, flights, or mass transit. 25 million people effectively quarantined and nervous. You need to have a face mask. No face mask, you can't get in. And we thought, well, that was pretty serious. At the time, lockdown wasn't a word, a concept that was much in use. But within weeks, much of the world would be locked down in one way or another. Fast forward to today, and those kinds of curbs are really rare. Except in China, where the official strategy still aims for zero COVID. Lockdowns are more targeted, but they're no less strict. Officials have made an example of those who don't follow the rules. Riot police paraded four alleged violators of COVID-19 rules through the streets on Tuesday in China's Guangxi Autonomous Region, leading to criticism of the government. Now Beijing is set to host the Winter Olympic Games. It'll be a stark picture of how things are going in China. What won't be as clear is just how much turmoil is going on behind the scenes, in its economy and in its frantic bid to hold off the most transmissible coronavirus variant yet. So right now, China's recording about 100 new cases a day. That's actually down a little bit on recent weeks and days where we've seen more like 150 a day. Simon Cox is our China economics editor and is based in Hong Kong. These are very small numbers by international standards, but China is extremely sensitive to any case and infection. We've seen spread of the Omicron variant in a number of places now, seven provinces and several very important cities, uh, Shanghai, Shenzhen, Beijing reported its first local case on January the 15th. China remains entirely committed to its zero COVID strategy, but even people who are very sympathetic to that approach will have to concede that it's harder to sustain in the face of something like the Omicron variant. And so how has that zero COVID machinery responded as as Omicron has taken hold? Well, large numbers of people in China are in lockdown, actually not chiefly because of Omicron. The biggest lockdown, most wide-ranging lockdown, is in the central city of Xi'an, 
where they've suffered from a Delta outbreak that local officials failed to control. And they brought a very abrupt, sweeping lockdown that sealed off the city, stopped people going shopping for groceries, brought a tremendous amount of discomfort and some complaint. We've also seen large amounts of mandatory testing, which can be quite disruptive. Health officials have expressed concern that perhaps someone got infected from opening a package from Canada. And so they've asked people to use gloves and wear masks when opening post from abroad. Uh, There's also concern, obviously, about the Olympics, in which uh, domestic ticket sales have been stopped. And we've also have concerns about Chinese New Year, which is fast approaching and normally would be a period of great travel. And obviously there are concerns that that might contribute to the spread. And we certainly spent a lot of the early pandemic talking about the, the economic costs of lockdowns and these lockdowns clearly still happening in China. What, what are the impacts now? So the most immediate and direct impact is on consumption in China, on retail sales, catering, restaurants, domestic tourism, travel, things like that. A lot of the attention, however, especially amongst international observers, is on supply chains. Obviously, China's hugely important exporter. And so we've seen quite a lot of anecdotal reports of disruption. For example, in Tianjin, where there was an Omicron outbreak, they imposed mandatory testing, which disrupted factory production, including some quite prominent companies such as Volkswagen and and Toyota. And this is happening at an awkward, difficult time for the Chinese economy. What do you mean by that? How how difficult? China actually reported its growth figures for last year just this week. And it said that China last year grew by over 8%, which obviously sounds very impressive, But a lot of that was because, of course, 2020, when the pandemic first hit, was extremely weak. So this year was always going to look good by comparison. And as the year went on, growth did slow. In the last quarter, I think it grew by 4% compared with the year earlier. That's quite slow by China's standards. And is there anything behind all that slowing beyond the the lockdowns? There's a lot else going on in in China's uh, economy right now, other pressures upon it. In particular, they're in the middle of a very sharp property slowdown, exemplified by the default uh, of Evergrande, a big developer, and several other developers too have run into financial stress. And there have also been shortages of coal uh, late last year. There's been a regulatory crackdown, which has got lots of people worried about particular technology sectors that seem to have fallen out of government favour. And so as 2021 progressed, growth seemed to slow. So what does all that look like then as we get into 2022? How do things look like they're going to play out? Well, the property slowdown is still very much with us and there are increasing signs that the authorities are worried that some of the limits they placed on property developers to stop them borrowing too much might have inadvertently created a bit of a panic or unease amongst home buyers. And also the problem we're going to face this year is that it's unlikely China will be able to repeat the kind of export boom it enjoyed last year. So last year, exports grew extremely quickly, partly because Western shoppers shifted from buying services to buying stay-at-home goods, you know, the famous Peloton bicycle or the games consoles to sort of keep you occupied during lockdown. Now, we hope that that will switch back to services this year as life gets to normal in the West. But even if it doesn't, it's unlikely that people in the West will repeat those purchases or indeed spend more this year than they did last year. So the export boom won't be there to help prop up China's growth. So where does that leave policymakers then? How how can China sort of get things back on an even keel? So I think there's been a very interesting switch in the official rhetoric. They were sounding really quite tough and hawkish around the middle of last year, especially on property. Now they've said that the priority has to be stability, which means reviving growth and reviving confidence, especially because 2022 is an important political year when Xi Jinping will be re-coronated, if you like, for a third term. 
So they've started to move into an easing mode. We've seen the central bank cut interest rates. We've also seen some movement on fiscal policy. So some income tax breaks have been extended and local governments are being encouraged to issue more bonds to help finance infrastructure. There's also some softening of the line on property developers, some guidance to banks that they can maintain their loan exposure to property developers. So there does seem to be a shift towards more easing policy in general. And how sensitive is all of this to Omicron, which seems basically across the world to have got a foothold no matter what people did in terms of public health? So the honest answer is no one knows. I mean, there were lots of predictions that the zero COVID strategy in China would fail to stop Delta, but it didn't. It pretty much succeeded in quelling Delta. So it's a big test. Omicron does seem almost tailor-made to frustrate China's zero COVID machinery because that machinery relies on early detection of cases and very comprehensive contract tracing. But the problem with Omicron is that it can be quite hard to detect early precisely because symptoms are often mild or people are asymptomatic. And it's so transmissible that can overwhelm any contract tracing effort. So it's going to be quite difficult for the zero COVID strategy to work as well as it has done up until now. So in that sense, when do you think China might open up again? The eternal question, get things back to normal. So it's a very difficult question to answer, but there are a number of things China could do to prepare for an end to zero COVID. For example, it could approve Western mRNA vaccines such as the Pfizer-BioNTech jab. And the evidence is, I think, still that those mRNA vaccines are more effective than China's homegrown vaccines. They also need to continue building up hospital capacity to cope with a wave of infections. And I think also we just need to prepare the population, if you like, for the fact that you're not going to get a definitive victory against this disease. You're going to have to settle for an uneasy truce. Up until now, it's been able to claim some justification that the zero COVID strategy was an enormous success and proof, if you like, of China's superior social governance. And one just hopes that there hasn't been so much pride staked on that approach that it becomes harder to adjust it and take a more technocratic approach as the virus evolves. Simon, thanks very much for joining us. Oh, thank you. World peace might feel kind of like a pipe dream, but what if I told you it's not? 2024 will see more than 50 elections around the world. And in some places, peace is actually on the ballot. One reason is because countries in Europe and Latin America have been experimenting with this thing called feminist foreign policy. Because right now, the way that we wage war and peace, it's kind of a boys club. The new season of Things That Go Boom from Inkstick Media and PRX is coming March 18th. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. I think they had two guns and they pressed me in my back and they told him to get in the car, so I got in. Basil Ivanovich Sviatopolk-Mirsky was a member of Russia's nobility at a time when that was a dangerous thing. Under the paranoid rule of Joseph Stalin, members of the elite, dissidents, and academics were branded enemies of the people and sent to the gulag system. It was a slave camp because I had to work there even if I couldn't work, I was sick. I was constructing a, um, a railroad, digging holes, constructing roads, building houses. I lost my leg 27 days before I was released. Precise numbers are hard to come by, but it seems clear that well over a million people died in the camps. But six decades on, there's some reason to think that a sliver of good came from the gulag. 
Today, the areas surrounding the camps are better off. It's a surprising result from a surprisingly successful call put out by Sondre Solstad, one of our data journalists. I invited researchers to submit their most interesting and important new work in order to enable us to showcase it in the newspaper. After setting this up, I was overwhelmed by the number of submissions. We had more than 300, and this Gulag story was the first one we decided to pursue. So what is this paper about? What is it that drew you to it? This paper by Gerhard Tuovs of the New Economic School in Moscow and Pierre-Louis Vizina of King's College London is about the relocation of much of the Soviet intelligentsia to gulags. And these gulags tended to be in areas that were quite remote. However, what the researchers found was that the areas around these gulags tend to do better economically today. So what's the connection there then between economic benefit and, and gulags that existed decades ago? So the people who were sent to gulags were a mixture of so-called enemies of the people and normal prisoners. These enemies of the people were people who, uh, for some reason, were politically undesirable, and they tended to be highly educated. What they think happened is that these enemies of the people were sent to these prisons and then settled nearby after they were released. The hypothesis is that they passed on their human capital to their children and families and to the areas in which they were sent. And so how did the researchers go about seeing if that was true? So they looked at 79 prisons and the mixture of enemies of the people and normal prisoners. They found that these tended to cluster in big prisons in thinly populated areas, but but otherwise uh, enemies of the people were, were pretty much randomly distributed. They then looked at the economic development of areas within 30 kilometers of these prison sites today. And what they found was that even accounting for regional differences and, and, and other factors that might have affected where people were sent, these areas with a lot of enemies of the people tended to do much better economically today, be it in share of wages or, or profits per worker. What surveys also found is that people who had grandparents who were enemies of the people tended to attend university at a much higher rate than, than everyone else. And this sort of implies a pretty clear cause behind this correlation that we see between places with a lot of enemies of the people in, in a nearby gulag and their economic development today, which is that they tended to make their children go to university, or at least their children tended to go to university more, and their grandchildren as well. And with better educated people, you had higher economic growth. But why is it that these former residents of the gulags ended up near them afterwards? Once they were released, why didn't they go home? Up until 1959, enemies of the people were not allowed to go home. They were given wolves' passports. That's the literal Russian translation for these restrictive documents that, that they were issued that stopped them from living in big cities. So they had to settle nearby. And eventually these prisons became company towns and managers at the state enterprises there recruited these ex-cons, who often stayed anyway because they had new friends or families. So about this call for papers, it's, it's still going on. You're still looking for interesting research to highlight. Yes, yes, we are. We are getting some incredibly exciting research. The range is just enormous. We are getting papers on the acidity of the oceans and how female and male soccer compares in perceived quality if you blur the body so that the gender of the, of the players can't be perceived. Turns out it's, it's pretty equal. And we are looking for anyone listening to this to submit the research. So please go to economist.com forward slash call for papers uh, and submit your research. And we will get in touch with you if we have the space to cover it. Sandra, thank you very much for joining us. It's a pleasure as always. Thank you.
As in most of the world's cities, there's one sound that dominates Indonesia's capital, Tunis, the traffic. Motorcycles, cars, trams, buses. But across parts of North Africa and the Middle East, people are choosing a different and less noisy way to get around. Cycling in the Arab world is a mixed bag. Simon Speakman Cordal writes for The Economist and is based in Tunisia. In the sort of more less developed, poorer regions, it's still very much seen as a utilitarian means to an end. If you go to the desert regions in Tunisia, and I imagine elsewhere across the region, you'll see old men and young men using old bikes to cycle to work. But increasingly in I think, Cairo, certainly in Dubai and the UAE, and you know, to a less degree in Tunis, you're seeing young, politically aware groups really push for greater visibility, greater support, and greater respect from government. And is that working? Are those pressure groups making any inroads, as it were, when it comes to improving the cycling experience? It is. It's a slow battle. I cycle in Tunis, which is still to take your life in your hands. You get a lot of stares. But there is an awareness. I think, you know, talking to people in Damascus, they've had some success, likewise in Cairo. The problem really does seem to be one of cycle lanes, where the government weighs in and gives these cycling groups support. And that is building like a segregated lane. They make great progress. But when that support is half-hearted and it's just a painted lane on an existing road, little happens and that just soon becomes an extra area for cars. Equally, if governments build new roads and increase the amount of space available for transport, what they're really doing is just increasing the amount of competition for a finite amount of space on the roads. Now, according to the World Bank, Road accidents in the Middle East and North Africa are still one of the leading causes of death. Most affected are people in economically deprived areas and young people. So to say that the roads are safe is a million miles from the reality. With that said, cycling actually does represent a relatively safe route, particularly when those cycle paths are segregated from the road. And I think the argument for cycling remains and is powerful. If cycle lanes are, are the things that would make them uh, safe and, and give people kind of more uh, room to move, as it were, is, is that changing? Are there, are there more of them? Yeah, they are increasing. In Tunis, we've just had a whole development of 10 kilometers of cycle lane uh, alongside the lake. Equally, they're being built in Lebanon as um, the, just the cost of running a car is making cycling a lot more an attractive proposition. The problem really is that they are not connected. So if you're trying to encourage people to you know, cycle as a commute you know, to get to work, then there is no real way of doing it. I mean, they could cycle safely for a limited amount of time if the cycle route is going in the same direction as they are, and then they have to dismount and push or brave the traffic. So it's a bit of a fragmented scene then. And, and we've seen in places, in particular in Paris, in, in here in London, especially during the pandemic, there's been this kind of grand government push to, to link things together, to make cycling a, a reasonable commute kind of scenario. Is, is there that push from the top across the Arab world? It's a mixed bag. In the UAE, it seems to be sincere. They have a lot of money and they're putting that money where their mouths are. Um, and it's a burgeoning sport or activity. In other areas. I mean, Cairo is the one that springs to mind. Al-Sisi has made great vocal play of encouraging Egyptians to get on their bikes. He has yet to put his money where his mouth is. I think the problem for a lot of these governments is that cycling 
it seems like a, a very low priority issue. Many of them are facing international conflicts, international rivalries. Um, domestically, some of these governments are under pressure. And the idea of allotting a lot of or investing a lot of resources to cycling can seem fairly distant. But the truth is, it's actually a relatively quick win and an easy win if they have the will to do it. Thanks very much for joining us, Simon. Thank you. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. The show's editors are Marguerite Howell, Kim Gittleson, and Chris Impey, and our sound engineer this week is Saul Rivers. Our senior producers are Stevie Hertz, Sam Colbert, Sam Westron, and Jet Gill. Our producers are William Warren, Rory Galloway, and Alizé Jean-Baptiste, and our assistant producer, Abisoye Oshindairo. We'll all see you back here on Monday. Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024.